Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, one of the keys to smart power. But first, joining us is my good friend, Barry Pavel, who worked at the Pentagon and at the National Security Council across three administrations and who now heads the Brent Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council Think Tank. Uh, Barry, thanks so very much for uh, joining us. It's really my pleasure, Vago. Looking forward to the discussion. In, indeed, uh, always a pleasure as well. And it was lovely uh, joining everybody last night at the Atlantic Council's uh, Distinguished Leadership Awards uh, and was uh, that honored the Ukrainian people, Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi, uh, as well as Ukrainian singer uh, Jamala. And it was uh, a lovely and, and, and moving event. Uh, and very, very uh, appropriate. Um, before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. And Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, and indeed, that's what we're trying to get to the heart of. Uh, Barry, I want to get uh, to the Russia-Ukraine war uh, in a moment. But start off with your take on the administration's national security uh, and national defense strategies. Um, you worked these documents in the past where you did gain a reputation for being a bit of a strategist. Um, you know, the administration is trying to focus more on, on China and Russia, but looking at uh, the lens that the resources are not infinite. So we'll trade away presence uh, and capacity for more higher end capability that may be better suited, for example, to deter or to, or to fight China. From your standpoint, what's the administration getting right and what's the administration getting wrong? Well, it's a great question, and their strategies are still in development. We still only have the interim national security strategic guidance. The, the national defense strategy is essentially done, but not yet released, and I'm told won't come uh, probably for several months uh, until the actual NSS is released. But I think um, I applaud sort of the hard line on uh, competition with China. I think that's very good. Um, I think they're doing a, you know, a lot of the right things in trying to marshal um, the U.S. Uh, global alliance network, which is one of our most valuable assets that we have as a, as a country. So uh, a lot right, and, and just doing those two things gets you very, very far, in my opinion. What I don't think is quite um, nuanced enough is um, a couple of things. I think you know, they're saying we're not in a great power competition. We're in a strategic competition, which means... We're in a competition against uh, even Iran and North Korea and who knows, maybe violent extremists. That's not prioritized enough uh, for two reasons. One is you got to set priorities because we have more to do than we ever have. We cannot deter and, uh, if necessary, defeat two great powers in two simultaneous conflicts at the same time. We cannot do that by ourselves. So we need to be much more sophisticated, and that means downgrading uh, other things that, that people around the table will not uh, want you to downgrade. To me, that includes Iran, uh, to an extent North Korea, to an extent violent extremists. We got to deal with the two priorities, which to me are Russia and China. Now, on Russia and China itself, I don't consider them both competitors. Uh, they are um, you know, very serious powers we need to take a, a, a get a handle on but they're very different. Uh, China is in a competition with us across 15 different domains, technology, economy, ideology, uh, a trade, uh, um, influence on key continents across the entire world. It's a very broad-based competition for influence. 
uh, kind of our approach versus theirs. I, I get that. We are not in a similar competition with Russia. It's much more contested. It's a contestation. And it's much more securitized. It's about military. It's about energy and probably propaganda and intelligence. There's not a whole lot else. They're not a major economic power. They're not a, a power with global influence um, with every country across the world. They're not in major trade relationships. They're not the major trading partner of many countries in the world. So we are being lazy by saying that we're in a competition with these two great powers. We got to get with it and further define and nuance what the approach is to China versus Russia. Um, and I do think those two are the overall priorities. In, in, in such a hyper-polarized environment, however, Barry, right? I mean, in the Cold War, we did have politicization, but it wasn't to the degree, right? I mean, a, a, a lot of politics did end at the water's edge, whereas now it's so continued that, you know, every administration has to contend with, God forbid, there's a terror attack on my watch, then it'll be my fault. I let my guard down or the North Koreans did something. See, uh, we should be doing something about the North Koreans. I mean, how do you make that kind of uh, important and strategic prioritization and, and get all the cats on the same page without it becoming, um, you know, I mean, and effectively, right? I mean, nobody wants to be accused of, of letting their guard down, which is why, you know, we don't prioritize it. Everything is really important. Yeah. And so every administration has, every administration's North Korea policy, let's just take that, has failed um, for the last four administrations, at least, if I'm counting. Um, correctly. Uh, so if the Biden administration joins that uh, group, it would be an august company. I'm not saying we should ignore it. I'm not saying we should do nothing. I'm saying we should uh, make sure that we devote the necessary resources to a great power that is currently invading a country and doing all the things it's doing um, and uh, disintegrating what was the European security order. Uh, and we should pay a lot of attention to China for obvious reasons. But th that means we do not have the resources. For example, let's take military to sustain the same level of presence in the Persian Gulf that we have for the last two decades. That's what the Abraham Accords will help us greatly. So let's get those assets much more in the service of dealing with uh, Russia and China as one example of many. Uh, on, in terms of military presence in the Korean Peninsula, I think we have it about right. So I'm not saying uh, evacuate, but I, I sure don't want to make it a priority at the same level of China and Russia. So those are just two small examples of how I would cascade this overall much starker prioritization uh, down to some particular resources. Because if you don't have these priorities, if everything's a priority, great. We will move the ball incrementally in a, in a decade where things are moving very quickly. So we, we have to up our game significantly. Dr. Patrick Cronin of the Hudson Institute uh, pointed out um, on one of our programs recently that actually as difficult as the decision to withdraw from Afghanistan was, that also resolved uh, a um, something that was consuming a lot of bandwidth that now we can devote elsewhere, whether it's to the China problem or, or to the Russia, Russia problem, although I know that there are some who would uh, disagree with that take. Um, I want to get to Russia's war on uh, Ukraine, as you said, unprecedented. Um, you know, the administration got off to a slow start, uh, but behind the scenes has been providing nothing short of extraordinary support to Ukraine, uh, bringing our allies and partners uh, together. Uh, in, indeed, you know, frustrated and incessantly being criticized, the administration went large, $33 billion. Congress upped it to $40 uh, billion, uh, which is uh, terrific. Uh, and But the unfortunate part is that, you know, some folks in the administration are now leaking uh, about 
you know, how we're helping, you know, our U.S. intelligence is helping kill Russian generals or sink Russian ships. What's the administration getting right? What's the administration getting wrong uh, as it prosecutes this critically important campaign? Because I think the president has framed this correctly. It's democracies against uh, autocracies. Uh, it's about the global order uh, and, and, and um, you know, preventing a return of a world to might makes right. But there's a lot in here, so let's 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 kind of break it down. But let me hit your last point. Um, uh, so I I certainly am a, a strong advocate that the United States should be uh, promoting democracy around the world, even as we're um, recognizing our own imperfections, and as the Secretary of State has said, continually trying to improve our own democracy uh, at home. And we have a lot of work to do. Obviously, the trends are not uh, entirely favorable, but I think this is an important framing. Uh, I would not frame this effort regarding the Russian invasion in that, in that way, because um, at the very beginning, we had most of the world with us. The more they started to hear uh, these kinds of, uh, you know, these kinds of analytic frames to, to, the, to the problem, these kinds of policy frames, we have lost them. Uh, and, the, and what they tell us, the Indians and others, they said, we were with you initially, but now it's, it's, it's your agenda. And, and that's not our agenda. So the question is, do we want to build a kind of a, a realist-based coalition that will be in it for the long term? Uh, and that means getting the fence sitters over to our side, the Saudi Arabias, uh, the, you know, the Indians and others, or do we want to you know, high volume the autocracy versus democracy question? So I, I'm not sure that's the way to go on this uh, in, in this particular uh, effort. I do think the administration has gotten a ton right. They were a bit slower. Um, on the, the weapons pipeline. Um, uh, but I think, you know, really in the right place now. Uh, I do worry about um, dealing with some of the Russian uh, counters to what we're doing. I think they're, they're getting smarter. They're hitting the supply lines, the rail hubs. We should be getting missile defenses and air defenses into those uh, key nodes would be another um, suggestion that I have. But I think overall, it's great. But the hard part is now ahead. This is gonna drag out. Putin loves frozen conflicts. And so how are we gonna steal um, Europe in particular uh, to keep the sanctions on? We've seen a little bit of slippage uh, this week with Hungary uh, being the spoiler, uh, which is not completely surprising. Um, but you know, I think the economic hardship has to be uh, thought of more, discussed more. Uh, heads of state uh, in the coalition, including President Biden, need to prepare the American people and others for what this is going to mean. And so, you know, so make the sacrifice, this is worth it. And so I would also make the point that um, this has kind of been thought of from the very beginning is not really our war. Um, we're helping someone, we're helping another country. It's not a NATO ally, so we're not gonna defend them, but this is a good thing to do. That is not correct. This is our fight. And the reason it's our fight is if Putin wins, it is very bad for US national security selfishly. Where that new Iron Curtain falls, the closer it is to Europe, the more defense spending over the next two decades we're gonna to have to engage in, the more major crises, Cuban Missile Crisis style, we'll, we will get sucked into. So the further that curtain is from, from Europe, from NATO, the better off we are. That It is a very selfish interest, and I don't think that point has been made at all. This is our fight, not just humanitarian, not just values. It is in U.S. national security interests. So we have to enable Ukraine uh, to win this and to 
get this to a place where uh, Russian invasion is much further from uh, our core national security interests. And and how do we do that, right? I mean, we have self-deterred to a degree, uh, Barry, uh, because, um, you know, there's this talk, oh, my God, Putin is crazy. He's an irrational uh, actor. Uh, we can't provoke him. He could go nuclear in any moment, right? And his uh, uh, acolytes are fanning that. Right. I mean, part one of the rules, as you as we've discussed in the past, right, but one of the rules of Fight Club, the nuclear club is you, you don't use the N word uh, ultimately. Uh, right. Uh, if you're if you're in it, uh, because, you know, other guys also have capabilities. What do we need to understand that we're misunderstanding about Vladimir Putin? Because it seems like. You know, he's not as crazy as he'd like us to think, and he's actually been remarkably consistent for the 22 years he's been in power. He has been remarkably consistent, and a lot of armchair quarterbacks are saying, you know, he's crazy. He has been completely rational. He gave a major speech uh, about his grievances uh, and signaling what he was going to do, and then he invaded Georgia, took a piece of Georgia in 2008. No one really did anything. Took, a, took uh, Crimea in 2014, slap on the wrist. T- uh, took the Donbass and started that uh, simmering conflict. Not really much of a response. So, okay you know, I'm going to take the whole thing if no one's going to really do anything in response. That is very rational uh, behavior, and it does lead to the nuclear conversation. He respects NATO's nuclear power. He respects U.S. nuclear weapons. He has done this before. He's talked uh, nuclear saber rattling and not uh, obviously, um, you know, launched a nuclear weapon in anger, which would be the first one since 1945. I don't think he's uh, a loose, you know, nuclear gunslinger the way a lot of uh, Washington uh, commentators are suggesting. Uh, I'm, we need to take it seriously and note it, but we shouldn't be hysterical and uh, let that deter us from doing things that are directly in our national interest, like providing MiG-29s to the Ukrainians, like providing whatever, whatever, whatever weaponry uh, the Ukrainians need because under international law, this is a legitimate endeavor. We're helping a country defend its own sovereignty against an unprovoked uh, invasion. And I think the last thing I would say is uh, we're getting a little loose with our rhetoric here about, you know, uh, we've heard from senior Defense Department officials, you know, we're, we're, gonna, we're in this now to weaken Russia. Once again, that is our agenda, maybe. You're going to lose a lot more uh, other countries from the coalition to the extent you keep saying that. And I think it's foolish. Why would you even tell, why would you even say that out loud? So if you want to do it, do it, but don't discuss it because you're stimulating antibodies potentially um, in Russia, but also among the coalition. So we need the rest of the world in this fight. And we we want to make this not a bilateral thing. Uh, We want to make it a, a global issue. We want to bring the entire world against this if we're smart. So I think a little bit of nuance, a little bit of subtlety, and a little uh, less talking and more listening in the pursuit of an effective strategy to me makes uh, imminent sense. Um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a reporter that also believes that there are times when you say no comment, uh, and I admire the administration for always trying to talk some of these things through, but I think it also gets itself into a little bit of um, you know, Talmudic uh, corners. Is the messaging changeable at this point, Barry, right, to turn this back into we're helping a sovereign nation. This is perfectly fine. It's perfectly legal. Um, and, you know, are the Indians, the Saudi, I mean, the Saudis are mad for their own reasons. The Emiratis are mad for their own reasons. Um, I do think that they do see a, a bit of advantage in, in luring some Russian money 
to, to their systems, right? I mean, that raises a secondary sanctions uh, discussion and debate. Is it, is it too hard to bring everybody over at this point? And the second piece of this is, you know, if you are, if we do end up going down a secondary sanctions road, you're like, how do we do that? Because at some point, right, I mean, the Russians do have to be punished for what they're doing. And that means, you know, attacking where they're hiding money. Um, the Swiss have said they'll help us. They haven't really been as publicly helpful. What, what's your sense in, in how we have to navigate this next phase? Yeah. And so there, there will be some countries where no matter what you suggest or do, you know, they won't change and they won't, you know, join in a meaningful way. But there may be others that would. So I, I think this is a time for good old fashioned, you know, shuttle diplomacy. Go talk to these countries. Go discuss in particular your, you know, U.S. and, and NATO strategy. What is the strategy? How do we translate these measures we're undertaking, which I think are the right ones, largely? But what's the translation mechanism between what we're doing and the outcome we're seeking and talk to those countries about it and, and get their buy-in and make it clear that this is not a narrow bilateral issue. Um, when General Scowcroft was National Security Advisor, uh, people would come to him with various policy suggestions, you know, do this, do that. And, and I'm told he often would ask, what's the strategy? And so I think a little clarity, even, and you don't have to announce it to the world, but it might be useful, a little more clarity on strategy uh, and then going to these countries and talking to them about it so they see what the U.S. is trying to do, what their role might be, how it might be in their interests to join um, or at least not to counter at minimum. I think that those kind of old fashioned approaches of using strategy and engaging in um, really serious diplomacy that doesn't have to be public. I think that's the way to to strengthen this coalition because this could be years. And um, so how and are we going to keep this up? It's a business, you know, CEOs are telling me, including last night at the Atlanta Council Awards dinner, you know, this is hurting the bottom line. It's hurting the global economy. What is the plan? How long can we do this and toward what ends? And, and obviously, right, I mean, uh, Putin, the rational actor, is looking at this, you know, as you said, on, on frozen conflicts. I can outlast you guys. I will absorb pain. And you will lose interest in inflicting pain in me for your own self-interest, right? Um, that's where I completely agree with you. You have to make the economic sanctions really, really, really bite and bite hard enough uh, to also compel him uh, to shape his own end uh, goals on this, right? I mean, ultimately, he's the guy calling the shots here, right? I mean, he can stop this tomorrow, can he? So that is in our favor. The, the fact that Putin controls the information environment almost completely in Russia is enormously in our favor because he can shape his own narrative. And he already has shaped various narratives from the very beginning of this endeavor. And because of that, I think, you know, the, some of this talk of off ramps and this and that, I don't I don't think I buy it. You know, he can decide whenever he wants. OK, I've just achieved a major achievement and he can shape a narrative. And he can stop this or he can keep it on a low boil, which I think is the likely outcome where this will be another frozen conflict where perhaps in six months after he decides uh, this phase is done or in a year or in two or four years, he'll he'll try again. He'll relaunch an attack, uh, try to get a military that learns the lessons and do it more effectively, which is a big worry. Again, another reason why this is our fight and we want to keep him as far east as possible. Uh, in Ukraine, if not entirely out. Uh, so uh, we, we need to think long term here and we need to think, 
uh, strategically about how we can end this on terms that are favorable for U.S. national interests. Um, I, uh, you know, when you were um, talking about uh, that shuttle diplomacy and the nuance, it takes us back to the Cold War, right? There was a us, and after 9-11, we became very, um, you know, you're either with us or against us. During the Cold War, it was a little bit more flexible. We would like you to be with us. We understand if you can't be, we're going to figure out, for example, if you're uh, the Czech Republic and, you know, hey, we'll work with Tito uh, where we can work with Tito, right? Uh, we'll, um, you know, countries uh, around the world that were proxy uh, areas, we had a much more nuanced approach rather than us uh, versus them, even as we were trying to make that case for democracy worldwide. Let me ask you one last question uh, in the brief amount of time we have, we have left. There are some uh, some in the administration are talking about you know why Ukraine is important because it's about Taiwan and we heard that early on. There are now others who say, well, you know, it's impossible to draw Ukraine lessons for Taiwan. And indeed, actually, the two are are very very similar. Russia looks at Ukraine the way China looks uh, at Taiwan, which is its own territory, and you know they're not sovereign nations. Um, uh, you know what what are what are we learning and what do we have to be doing in Ukraine and what does it mean in the China? Taiwan context, because you and I are also alike in that we believe that window of danger is likely a little bit closer, right? We've been saying it's 10 years, 10 years, five years. You know, a couple of years ago, there were some senior people who were actually looking more at 2025 being the danger date, not even 2027, which is the PLA's 100th anniversary. What, what, are, what, what should we be learning in, in Ukraine, Barry, that's important uh, for Taiwan? What's the messaging how do we need to be approaching this? Because obviously, right, the most important thing is don't let a war start. Deterring is a lot cheaper than fighting. Yeah. And so uh, a ton of lessons learned. We probably don't have the time to cover all of them. But I do think, um, number one, uh, we're seeing the, the revolution in military affairs, enabled in particular by network-driven warfare. We're seeing that play out in real time. And so what some have called the small, smart, and many, I mean, we're seeing this, we're seeing a, a medium-sized power uh, not just defend itself, but re repel uh, a very large traditional conventional power with advanced military equipment. We need to look at this. This could be, and is, I think, revolutionary for Taiwan defending itself. Different terrain, different circumstances, different motives, different geopolitics, but there is a lot. Uh, that uh, we can learn to help Taiwan defend itself. And, and, and potentially, um, we will still obviously contribute to their self-defense. But this could help reduce or, or certainly change U.S. military requirements and timelines for coming to Taiwan's defense. So we should really uh, crank uh, on that. At the strategic level, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm always worried as a former defense planner I don't think there's much of a chance of, an, of a near-term attack. Uh, Xi Jinping needs stability, at least through November. Uh, he's seen the world coalesce when a country is attacked by a larger, you know, aggressive power and doesn't want any part of that. Obviously, the sanctions regime would be different, um, but I can't imagine his advisors would want that in the near term. So the question is, how can they get what they want? without suffering that kind of, um, of response. And, and to me, that means a much more nuanced scenario and a delayed scenario. Uh, so not you know, much more like little green men going into Crimea in 2014, uh, much more like those uh, uh, Chinese security services going into Hong Kong in basketball suits uh, 
during the height of the protests, uh, not like massive salvos of missiles destroying, you know, civilian, you know, residential buildings for, for, for iPhones across the island to, to um, you know, to, to broadcast to the entire world. That ain't going to happen. They're not that stupid. So we have to really rethink um, what we're doing. But I think there's a lot of lessons here and a lot of favorable lessons that it drives you to, in my mind, toward a much more hybrid scenario uh, for China's, uh, for China to try to achieve its objective of reunifying Taiwan sometime in the near term. Uh, Barry, it is always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks very much for joining us and look forward to having you back on uh, to discuss uh, uh, strategy uh, going forward because it's a, it's a real treat uh, to, to talk to you on these issues. Thanks for being so generous with your time. Tremendous event uh, yesterday, and it was uh, really terrific uh, to see everybody, uh, everybody in person. Uh, thanks so much again. Thank you, Vago. I really enjoyed it. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.